Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. All right. The uh, Asteroid 2023 DW. I keep saying we have to come up with more romantic names for these uh, celestial bodies and meteors and android uh, asteroids and comets and planets that they discover. They give them such cryptic names. Anyway, Asteroid 2023 DW was just discovered in late February, but NASA says it's tracking it closely to learn about its orbital path because the asteroid has a very small chance of impacting Earth in 23 years. The uh, asteroid's diameter is listed at nearly 50 meters. That's about the size of an Olympic swimming pool. Uh, It takes 271 days to orbit the sun. NASA says that after a new object is first discovered, It takes several weeks of data to reduce the uncertainties and adequately predict their orbits years into the future. So as for how small the chance of impact is currently estimated to be, NASA NASA puts it at 1 in 560 odds of impact. 1 in 560. Put another way, that's about 0.18%. 0.18% chance of hitting the Earth or a 99.82% chance that the asteroid will streak harmlessly past our planet. Uh, You can read more about this in the In the News section up at coasttocoastam.com. And coming up tonight on Coast to Coast, Connie Willis will be in the air chair. And in the first half, he's known as the, uh, or he was known as the king of fitness. Jack LaLanne was the first person to ever have an exercise program on TV. His wife, Elaine LaLanne, called the first lady of physical fitness, will join Connie again in the first half to discuss aging, health, and cognitive fitness. And uh, she's still doing push-ups at the age of 97, keeping her iconic husband's spirit and advice alive. In the second half, with 45-plus years' experience in the fields of electronics, computing, and AI, Charles Ostman has been a senior fellow at the Institute of Global Futures, and he'll talk with Connie about nanotechnology as a core catalyst for accelerating next stage evolution. That's coming up tonight, Saturday night into Sunday morning with your guest host, Connie Willis on Coast to Coast AM. Back to more of my conversation, plus your calls for Robert W. Sullivan IV as we talk about cinema symbolism right here on Coast to Coast AM. And we are back with Robert W. Sullivan IV, historian, philosopher, writer, lawyer, antiquarian, and we're talking about occult symbolism in movies. And um, before the the break, we started to talk a little bit about James Bond, and um, you wanted to talk about, was it The Man with the Golden Gun or Goldfinger? Right, no, it was The Man with the Golden Gun. This was... This was, I was just going to give briefly just another example of what we were kind of talking about is um, if, you ever watch, if you ever watch that movie, which is 1975, uh, based on Fleming's novel, um, the, the movie is all about uh, powering, is using the power of the sun, harnessing the power of the sun. Um, and this is being done by Scaramanga, who is played by Chris Lee, um, and, and the Bond girl in it, and in this one was Brett Eklund. Um, I believe it was Miss Goodnight. And uh, what what kind of you know what kind of makes this unique a little bit is at least to, in my opinion, um, and again this harkens back to what we were talking about before the break is um, this was 1975. If you go back in time, just a mere two two or three years, 
um, I mean, who played the two most famous sun worshippers of them all? Um, I mean, it's Christopher Lee and Brett Eklund in The Wicker Man. Um, uh-huh. So, so again, by putting them in there, it, it just sort of sort of reinforces this whole you know solar undercurrent going on. Um, to have you know Lee and Eklund in there um, just two years earlier, they're like I said, worshiping the sun uh, in The Wicker Man, and now here you have a movie that's all about technically worshiping the sun, solar energy, solar power, uh, in The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, again, same same sort of idea being carried forward, the use of an actor or an actress to convey to your subconscious mind some sort of occult theme or agenda um, or, you know, or, you know, trope or something like that. Uh, very fascinating. So Ian Fleming, um, not the director in this case, but the, the, was he writing, um, was he writing uh, these books and, and, and imbuing them or embedding uh, occult themes in them because you know he had an association with Aleister Crowley during the Second World War, um, or or was this all done by the director? No, no. The, you you will definitely find these hermetic themes uh, in in the in the novels. Um, uh, for for example, I mean you know the James Bond himself, 007, is of course John D. Queen Elizabeth the first court astrologer. Um, you, you know when his signature is. When, when he went to the Holy Roman Empire to undermine Rudolf II, and he was, you know, went as a spy uh, for for QE1, um, when he would write a correspondence back to her, he would sign a 007, and the signature was meant to look like eyeglasses or spy glasses. It was two circles with a line over them, then a line down the sign. It looks like 007, um, indicating that the correspondence was for her eyes only, you know, or he was her eyes in the field. And of course, this is where the term for your eyes only originates. Um, so you have that going on with 007, and again, you, you are absolutely correct. Um, uh, during World War II, um, Ian Fleming was, uh, was, was Aleister Crowley's handler, and uh, Crowley actually turns up uh, in two of Fleming's novels. He's the, he's the villain. Uh, in, in Casino Royale, the chief uh, is Aleister Crowley. Um, he, he uses an inhaler. And he was a sadomasochist. And when you watch uh, 2006's Casino Royale, uh, you'll see this clearly. The, the inhalers are in reference uh, to Crowley's asthma, which he developed in the 1920s from chronic drug abuse. And uh, Crowley, of course, was a sadomasochist. And you'll see this in, in, in Casino Royale when he tortures James Bond. Um, so so, so Le Chief is actually Aleister Crowley, and so is Blofeld. Uh, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, specifically in uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Casino Royale is the first Fleming novel. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, I believe, is the second one. And this is where Blofeld, the head of Spectre, um, is running around trying to fake his coat of arms and, and claiming, claiming descent from French nobility, uh, that he's a, a, a French count. Um, and and this, 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 this is a cross-reference, again, to Aleister Crowley when he was in Egypt, when he was in Cairo, Crowley was holding himself out as Scottish nobility. He was running around calling himself Lord Boleskin and pretending to be Scottish nobility. Of course, he wasn't. Um, so, so yeah, those those two James Bond villains, uh, Blofeld in On Her Majesty's Secret Service and Le Chief in uh, Casino Royale, are Aleister Crowley, technically. Ah, I always learn so much when you're on the program, Robert. Thank you for that. Uh, let's go to the phones. East of the Rockies, Stacy is in North... Oh, we don't have Stacy. She dropped off. All right. How about 
Oh, it's Stacy uh, is in Northern California. She's just on, she should be on the West of the Rockies, but she's on East of the Rockies. That's all right. Welcome, Stacy. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I had a question for Robert. He's talked about um, the adult movies and I have a kid and I, I buy him a lot of movies to watch, Disney movies. They seem to be really super full of just blatant symbolism. Um, see, some of the movies like Sing 2, um, Buzz Lightyear, and their newest one, Turning Red, they're so bad that I don't let him have the movies to watch. Why are they putting that into the movies, and what does it mean? Um, I have not seen those movies per se, but I, and I, I, in not, being, not seeing them, I'm sort of flying blind with it. Um, I'd have to look at the movie and determine the context of it, but I can tell you that uh, Disney is no different from any of these other Hollywood studios. Their movies are usually laden with, with you know, different things going on. Um, some of it isn't necessarily too negative. I mean, when you get into the early movies, you know, the fairy tale movies like Sleeping Beauty and uh, Cinderella and Snow White, um, these are all retelling of the sun and the moon, the alchemical wedding, um, the, the, the death and the resurrection of the sun, uh, the dawn, uh, things, things related to astrology and astronomy. Um, I, I know that the National, National Treasure, and I've talked about this before, uh, from 2003 is a Masonic ritual. That's the Royal Arch of Enoch. I document that ad nauseum in, in, in my book. Um, the movies that you have mentioned, unfortunately, I haven't seen. And I usually make it a point to um, not comment on a movie that I haven't seen. So without doing that, again, I'd have to look at it and just see the context of what, what is being presented. But, no, you, you, know, you, you, will, you will find this uh, material in children's movies as well. Um, the Smurfs are communists. You'll find you know, the Marx Angles doctrine in, embedded in, in, in the cartoon The Smurfs. Uh, so, you know, again, this is really nothing, nothing new. Stacy, thank you for the call. I mean, there is some films have a particular agenda, which is is separate from maybe what you're talking about, Robert. And you're talking about um, a sort of a hidden theme that's just there to give. It's not necessarily to push an agenda, or am I wrong? It's just it's just to add layers to the film in, in part. Well, it just depends. It depends, Richard. Um, I mean, it, it's you can't paint. Unfortunately, you can't paint with broad strokes with this topic. It's it's individual. You just have to look at the individual movie. Um, so, some movies have political under, underlying themes. The Wizard of Oz, Joker, has this. So, some movies, you know, uh, you know, do, are gnostic. Some movies are alchemical. Some movies do this. Some movies do that. Again, it's it's just you have to look at the individual movie and and take it one movie at a time, as it were. Um, I don't like to paint with broad strokes. And, and you know, I'm not going to come on here and say, well, every time you see this, it means this. That's erroneous. Um, as a lawyer, that would be like me saying, well, every time someone kills somebody, it's first-degree murder. We know this is not the case. Um, there are surrounding circumstances. There are, are contexts. It, it has to be placed contextually. So, right. I guess what know, I'm saying is there's a difference between an overt... Uh, sort of hitting you over the head with an overt political message, let's say, sure. versus versus kind of an encoded uh, theme or symbolism or or you know what have you. Um, you mentioned that uh, I just wanted to explore that a little bit because I'm fascinated by the the uh, reference to the Smurfs and communism. Uh, I've only caught fleeting glances of the Smurfs on, on television. What, what, what is, what is the communist, um, 
reference there. Right. Well, the Smurfs are all are communists. Um, they, they, they live in the perfect Marx, Engels, communist society. You know, this is Charles Fourier. This is, you know, all the socialists. The utopianists is where all this stuff comes from. I mean, if you look, most, most people have an understanding of communism. They think of China and Russia. Um, and, of course, this really isn't what Marx and Engels was really talking about. Um, I mean, if you you know, the, the whole idea with with communism was once you once you rid the world of capitalism, you're in a utopia. Um, there, you know, you know. Of course, this doesn't work in reality. Um, but but you know, I mean, what what happens when you implement you know communism in Russia and China? Well, in theory, in you know, in Marx and Engels' theory, there's no government, um, there's no police. It's utopia. Um, there's no disease. Once once you rid the world of capitalism. Um, you know, you always you always hear people saying, "Oh, we need socialized medicine." No, there's no hospitals. Um, no one gets sick anymore. Um, it's, again, it's utopian theory. Um, once you rid the world of capitalism, there's no more crime. Well, and this is what you have in the Smurfs. I mean, where's the Smurf hospital? Well, there isn't one. Um, where's the pol- you know police? Where's the army? Well, there isn't one. There's no more wars. There's no more crime. Um, when you look at the Smurfs, I mean, they all wear the same outfit. They live in a perfect uh in perfect harmony with nature um they each do according to their own you know you have the farmer smurf the poet smurf the smart smurf um and these are all of course run by papa smurf who is of course karl marx with the long white beard um and you know he wears the red little hat you know this is the sans colot from the french revolution these are the proto-marxists and uh you know again there's there's no smurf police station there's no smurf hospital there's no smurf army it's not necessary um, it's utopia. So when, when you when you look at the Smurfs, yeah, I mean this is the perfect communist society as Marx and Engels envisioned it. And you know you look at like the character of Gargamel, who is always trying to undermine mind these guys. You know you can look at you know who who is the mortal enemy of of the communists. Well, you can look at it as through one of two lenses. It's you know the Nazis, Nazi Germany. You know, and, and you have Gargamel, you know, kind of clad in black, reminiscent of the SS, living in the, the hovel with the, you know, magic, magic book down in the basement. You know, and Himmler was, of course, obsessed with the occult. Or, or you can you can look at Gargamel as the West, as capitalism. Uh, Gargamel is constantly after money. He's always trying to transmute base metal into gold, uh, make himself wealthier. And, of course, this is capitalism. Uh, at its finest, so you, you you can look at Gargamel as either the Nazis or as the capitalists who are always trying to you know wage war against you know the perfect little Smurf communist society. Um, and and again again this is a very you know you know when when you look at the Smurfs, I mean what what's Gargamel do? He's a wizard. I mean he uses Kabbalah. He uses magic. He takes the base you know the the, the, the lump of clay and turns it into a living creature. This is Kabbalah. This is golem making. This is Smurfette, arguably one of the most famous uh, golems ever created outside of probably Frankenstein's monster. And she goes into the Smurf society and she's there to undermine it. But of course, Papa Smurf winds up using white Kabbalistic magic and turns Smurfette into the little blonde hair, blue eyed, uh, you know, Smurfette that we all come to know and love. When when she originally goes in, she kind of is reminiscent of Frankenstein's monster with the black stringy hair. But of course, she gets transformed by by the white magic of of uh, Papa Smurf. You know, and you know, it associates and assimilates into the society. So yeah, I mean, when when you're looking at the Smurfs, yeah, I mean, it's communism 101. <laughs> Amazing, amazing. If I ever, I'll never, I'll never watch it uh, the same way again. Obviously, um, we um, 
what would you say like when i when i think of occult uh themes um one of the movies that you know people mention is the wizard of oz and um the guy that that wrote the wizard of oz is frank baum uh, right. i mean he was totally into uh, the occult and theosophy wasn't he Absolutely. He was he was a member of, of Madame Blavatsky's Neo-Gnostic Theosophy Society. And, and when you deal with The Wizard of Oz, again, this, this is one of those movies that's kind of like Midsommar. Uh, you know, it's multi-layered, um, and, and, and that is always makes it, you know, when, when you have a movie that's multi-layered and contains mul- multiple themes going on, um, that always makes it more interesting. And, of course, you have this in The Wizard of Oz where you really have three layers um, on top of one another. I mean, the first is you just have this base story of this farm girl going off and having this adventure and going home at the end, uh, reminiscent of something like Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. And again, these these two stories run parallel. Um, and again, he was into, uh, you know, psychology, parapsychology, things like that. That's Carroll, Charles Dodson I'm talking about. And, 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 and the, the second theme going on in The Wizard of Oz is the political one, um, where you have this retelling of late 19th century, uh, the political socio-economic scene of the United States, where The Wizard of Oz is President William McKinley, Dorothy Gale is Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you have um, the, the, you know, the, 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 the cowardly lion is, you know, you know, William Jennings Bryan and Eugene Debs, the socialists. Um, wow. Hope- Just hold it right there, Robert. Sorry for the interruption. We'll uh, we'll pick up on this on the other side. Amazing. Robert W. Sullivan IV, Cinema Symbolism, on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Don't forget the website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Tennessee Congressman Tim Burchett is certainly no stranger to making out their claims about UFOs and aliens. Speaking during a recent interview with Newsweek, Burchett said that he believed the U.S. government had, quote, recovered a craft at some point and possible beings, end quote. He said, I think that a lot of that's being reverse engineered right now, but we just don't understand it, he said. His claims follow on from comments he made back in January after the Pentagon's Office of the Director of National Intelligence released its long-awaited uh, report on UFOs. And you can read more about Congressman Tim Burchett and his uh, out-there claims. Maybe they're not so out there. That's in the In the News section of at coasttocoastam.com. All right, back to more of your comments, questions for Robert W. Sullivan IV as we talk about symbolism embedded in some of your favorite movies. Stay with us right here on Coast to Coast AM. All right, let's go back to the phones for Robert W. Sullivan IV and cinema symbolism. Uh, Let's see. Um, Our good friend Mayad checking in from New York City. Mayad, welcome to Coast. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Boy, have you woke me up. Such an excellent program, both parts. Um, Robert, I'd like you to pull out your pen, and you too, Richard. Uh, I have a brief four-parter with some brief comment, and I'll listen over iHeart. First of all, Robert, are you familiar with the Sophia Stewart story as regards much documentation, at one point she even won, uh, probably in the lower courts, in terms of her 
the plagiarism of her uh, original conception of the Matrix. Uh, quite a story, and she's a black woman. The second part of my question would deal with um, whether you're... I'd like to hear some references to um, uh, September 11, 2001. A lot of uh, pre uh information... And uh, Richard had the good sense to bring S.K. Kent Bain on, who's the most dangerous book in the, in the world, uh, 9-11 as mega ritual. And when we use the term 9-11, per the programming, we're saying evil magic. The third part um, of my question, well, also the Western series that predicted Trump and his fence, and, and he, in that instance, he was sent out of town, I, I believe. That's the end. And lastly, I'd like to hear about, um, to, to the fellow writers out there, about the genesis of your research, which we so appreciate uh, of, and also the process of your writing. And if you have my four-part question, I'll listen over the air. Thank you so much, Richard and Robin. Okay, Maya, thank you. All right, so, so Sophia Stewart uh, um, supposedly wrote The Matrix and it was stolen from her. Have you heard about, about that? Yeah, a little bit. I really, uh, that's not my bailiwick. Um, no. I don't, you know, I, I've, I've heard so many stories over this over the years. I can't d- discern what's real and what isn't anymore with that one. Um, she okay, wins, predict- she loses, she wins, she loses. Um, you know, it, it's something that's, you know, I, I just don't know enough to comment about it. All right. Predictive programming, something we've talked about before. Um, and obviously, you know, there are so many examples of oh, yeah. predictive programming in, about September 11th. Yeah, I mean, she, the, the question about September 11th and Trump, there's loads of evidence in, in film um, and, in you know, in advertising with Trump, um, you know, that seems to predict these. Uh, and 9-11, sure. I mean, you can turn to movies like Fight Club. Uh, I mean, she, just briefly, I'll go over a couple examples. Um, Fight Club, where Tyler Durden, you know, they destroy the buildings at the end. This is 1999, um, where he refers to the site as Ground Zero. Fight Club was released. You can always look at this as a countdown. Fight Club, um, you know, was released like two years, like September 10th or something, 1999, which syncs to the Simpsons episode of Homer Simpson versus New York City, which was like September 22nd, 1997. So it's almost like a timing countdown to this. Um, uh, The Matrix with the passport, which is 9-11, if you want to go back further in time. The James Bond movie Thunderball, um, where Blofeld, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, uh, accuses 9 and 11 of embezzlement. And he kills, uh, I believe, number nine in Thunderball, but then he kills number 11 in You Only Live Twice, which is the next uh, Bond movie. Um, so many examples with that. Trump, you can look at the Serta Mattress ad uh, where, where he, you know, it's, it's 11-9 or 9-11. And, of course, November 11th is when he won the presidency. Um, and I, I'm familiar with the Western show. I talk about that in the book. Um, the only thing... Track, I, oh, that was Trackdown uh, from the track 1950s. Down, Western TV show about the guy named Trump who wants to build the wall. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen that segment. Um, the only thing I add, I add to, to, to all this is um, you have to also turn to the world of Carl Jung and Emanuel Schwettenborg. Um, 
Carl Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist who gets into the world of the collective unconscious and what he terms synchronicity, that is meaningful coincidences that he claimed was coming out of the world of the supernatural. Um, the Christian mystic, also uh, Emanuel Schwettenborg back in the 18th century, also talked about this. He called it correspondences, meaningful coincidences. So when you talk about 9-11 or Trump, you have to also account for that these uh, could be coming out of the world of the supernatural as well. These may not be, you know, programmed per se by some sort of hidden hand. Uh, these could be coming out of the world of, super, of the supernatural. That has to be also taken into consideration uh, when, when analyzing this. And again, the two names are Carl Jung and Emanuel Schwettenborg, very, very, very highly influential people. And um, the last thing I think she wanted me to touch on was my research into this. Yeah, this began for me um, back in um, 1992, over, over uh, 30 years ago now, when I was a student at Oxford University. Um, this is when all this began for, for me. I, I was a student at Oxford. I spent my junior uh, year there from 1992, 1993 at St. Cat's um, at Oxford. I went back briefly in 1995 during the Michaelmas term. But, yeah, th this was where I first sort of got, you know, I'd, I'd always been interested in, in the paranormal, the occult, mysticism, UFOs, uh, cryptozoology as a child, as a kid growing up, teenager. And when I went over there, this was where I was really introduced to the idea of the hermetic world, uh, the occult influencing politics, social, social constructs, uh, people like John Dee, Giordano Bruno, people like that, Freemasonry, secret societies. I am, of course, a Freemason myself. And it was really my time in Oxford that really showed me the impact on the, of the world of the occult and the hermetic influence on modernity, on the modern world, as it were. And, uh, yeah, that's where my research began, and my writing began into all this. And as Richard has mentioned during the course of the show, there are five books out. Uh, there are more on the way. And, uh, yeah, so that, that's how it all began. All right. Great uh, questions there from Myatt. All right. Wildcard line, Kathy's in Pasadena, California. Kathy, good morning. Welcome to Coast. Hi, how are you? Well, thank you. I wanted to say, you know, with uh, in remarks with that uh, lady that was talking about the Smurfs and the swastikas and all that stuff, what happened to all the innocence in the kids that don't really need to hear all that junk? I mean, you know, I am not old, but I do know uh, programs like Leave it to Beaver and things like that that were very innocent and yet taught such a wonderful thing about caring about other people and very simple things. And they have made things now into such a horrible, uh, how do I say it, almost like a sickening, you've got to be gay or you've got to be this or you've got to have this in school. And I think if people really just stop watching these things, it might well, again, Kathy, though, but that's not really yeah. what Robert is talking about. You're talking about a specific agenda, which exists in certain programs, but we're talking about the hidden layers uh, in in movies that uh, can uh, sort of play on the subconscious, but can also enhance the movie going um, experience because of, you know, things like occult casting and so forth. Um, but I think, you know, we sort of covered that with that earlier caller. Uh, let's go west of the Rockies. Jack is in Alaska. Jack, welcome to Coast. Uh, yes, uh, you're a very interesting guy, uh, Robert, you are. Um, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you, when, when do you think uh, the color red became associated with the left? You mentioned the, the sand colos in the, and the French, uh, the furies of France, France uh, 
the the revolutionaries they were they were called Sam Closer were were without pants they were so poor. Yeah, c- correct. Uh, that the, the the color red is is a highly complex uh, subject matter and can mean multiple things depending on the context. Um, correct. Uh, the, the color red definitely does associate with the red hats of the sans culottes who were your proto Marxist communists uh, during the French Revolution. Um, if you are dealing with a movie that is alchemical, the color red is critical. Uh, that represents something known as the rubido. That is the uh, finishing act, as it were, of the alchemical process, um, what Carl Jung called individuation. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, 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 the red, red is, can mean multiple things, uh, depending on the context of the film. That's a very a good question, but again, um, can mean, can mean multiple things, but yeah, it is, it is a color that definitely associates, um, with the communists. It can also associate with, uh, the Nazis, uh, the, the Nazi banner was red and that had to do with the blood standard, uh, from, from the, the, the Munich putsch. So again, it's all contextual. It, 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 uh, just has to be looked at, uh, through what context it's being used in. Okay, Jack, thank you for that. What about Ruby, the Ruby red slippers in the Wizard of Oz? Is that alchemical? Uh, well, that's that's very interesting because um, in the novel they're they're silver, um, and and if if you're familiar with the movie, the 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 Yellow Brick Road, of course, is the gold standard. Uh, well, it's one of many things uh, that William McKinley promoted to back up paper money, and of course, this is why the Emerald City is green. It's paper money. It's the gold standard. Leads to the creation of paperbacks, green paperbacks, uh, greenbacks. Um, the silver slippers were the, the were something known as the free was is a reference to something known as the free silver movement. Um, that is sort of the same thing. Uh, it's it's the use of silver to back paper money, and this is why in, in the novel she uses silver slippers uh, to lead to the paper money to Emerald City. Um, unfortunately, when they made the film, um, the silver slippers didn't show up. Um, they, they couldn't see them. Uh, they, they kind of uh, it looked like she had invisible feet, as it were. So, so for aesthetic purposes, the silver slippers were changed to red um, ruby. Um, and again, this was more of a, an aesthetic change, of anything else, because the silver did not show up um, when they were filming the movie. Um, you could craft the argument that it is, it is definitely a token of alchemical gnosis. Of course, if you're familiar with The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy... <clears throat> The, the, the story is about is a Gnostic trip of, of, of revelation. The little girl leaves home, has this magic adventure, and comes to realize, has her Gnostic epiphany at the very end of it, that there's no place like home, which is her gnosis. And uh, in, in alchemy, <clears throat> the, um, the, the, the color red signifies the completion of the al- alchemical process. Alchemy and Gnosticism, it's very, very, very hair-splitting when it comes to those two themes. They walk hand-in-hand. Hand. So, there is a very subtle difference between the two, though. I get into that more in my books. Um, but again, just to echo what I said earlier, uh, the color red can, it, it is important, but it can mean different things. It's just in the context it's presented. All right. Uh, Wildcard line, Ron in Michigan. Ron, welcome to Coast. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. One of my favorite movies of all times is Laurel and Hardy's The March of the Toy Soldiers. And that movie, in my opinion, is so full of uh, symbolism, good and evil. And at the end, it, it has one of the best battle scenes of any movie I've ever seen. Your comments, please, sir. Have you yeah, seen I'm, Toy I'm Soldiers? I'm familiar with March of the Wooden Soldiers. It's a movie that I always seem to watch around Christmas as a child. 
Um, to be brutally honest, I have not seen it in many, many years. Um, it's been quite a while since I've seen it, and since I haven't watched it uh, in, in, in such a long time, I'm going to reserve comment on it. I'd have to go back and watch it again. But it's, it's a great film, and again, it's one of those movies that uh, it, when I watch it, you know, when, when I would watch it again, I'm sure it would bring up memories of my childhood because it was always something that seemed to be on around Christmas time when I was a boy in, in the 70s and 80s. But again, it's been so long since I've seen it. Um, I would just have to, I have to go back and see it and see what it, see what comes to mind. I, if I remember correctly, it involved a lot of fairy tales, um, and, and fairy tales are ultimately uh, archetypal, documenting the sun and the moon. So I'd I'd have to uh, go back and take a look look at it. All right, Joe. Thank you for that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Brendan is in Austin, Texas, on the wild card line. Brendan, you're going to be our last call. We'll have to make it fairly succinct. Gotcha. A hundred percent. So thank you for letting me on. And I had a super quick question. So uh, I was fascinated with the brain of JFK uh, talk earlier. And I was wondering, from my knowledge, whenever somebody is uh, shot with a bullet, unfortunately, there's a pressure cavity that's created inside of them that collapses within a couple milliseconds. But that can be really big. And a lot of times it liquefies the organ. So what was the brain like? Because I would think that it would be mostly liquefied. So what what would your what did your contact say about what the brain looked like? I'm really curious about that. I have no knowledge um, of what the brain looked like. Um, that was never brought up. Um, I, I have I have no knowledge of that whatsoever. I was told that RFK removed it from the archives and put it in Kennedy's coffin. Uh, his brother's coffin in 1967, what condition the brain was in at that time, I have no knowledge of. And I also have no knowledge if the brain was placed in the coffin in some sort of formaldehyde glass container or if it was removed from that. If it was removed, then obviously this would have disintegrated and and deteriorated years ago. Um, But what condition the brain was in uh, when it was removed, I have absolutely no knowledge of. All right, Brendan, thank you for that rather graphic but interesting nonetheless uh, question, and that reverts back to the uh, uh, earlier when when Robert was uh, revealing that a, a source close to the Kennedy family revealed to him the location of Kennedy, JFK's missing brain. All right. I don't know where those two hours uh, went, Robert, but they always go so quickly, and uh, they're always so jam-packed with fascinating information and film trivia and tidbits and, and uh, uh, can't wait can't wait for cinema symbolism to come out the uh, cinema symbolism four to come out thank you so much for this well thank you richard for having me on coast to coast tonight it was my pleasure to be here i thought the show was terrific and uh, i look very forward to returning all right we should also point out the website robert w sullivan iv as in the fourth robert w sullivan iv dot com right that's it. Correct. Links there to purchase the books. Information about me, www.robertwsullivaniv.com. All right. We've also linked up to your website at coasttocoastam.com. People just have to click on your name. All right, my friend. Until next time, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Richard. Have a good night. All right. That's it. George Norrie. For George Norrie, George Knapp, Lisa Lyons, Stephanie Smith, Tom Danheiser, Dan Galanti, Chris Burroughs, Michael Cozio, Donna Walker, Tim Banal, and Sean Latasur. I'm Richard Serrett. Thank you for your ears and your voices, your beautiful voices. Until next time, so long for now.